Greetings, Renegade. You have landed on Renegade Files, your underground connection to paranormal tales, unsolved mysteries, and covert culture. I'm your host, Lex Gordon, broadcasting from the Jungle Villa Outpost, deep in the uncharted tropics. This is Renegade Files, episode 27, Who Killed Don Arano? What did the offshore racing boat brands Formula, Donzi, Magnum, Squadron, and Cigarette all have in common? They were all created and built by Don Arano. In this episode, we dive into the high-powered world of offshore powerboat racing to explore the still unsolved mystery of who killed ocean boat racing legend Don Arano. In the 1970s and 80s game of fast boats, drug smuggling, million dollar deals, and powerful government officials, Don Arano played every angle and every side. Don Arano made offshore racing history by compiling a long list of championships in the boats he built. He made boats for kings, presidents, racing teams, and drug runners alike. But when he struck a deal with the U.S. Customs to build boats for them so they could finally catch the drug runners, drug runners who were also buying boats from Arano, he crossed a line that cost him his life. What followed was a series of events that sounds like the plot for an entire season of Miami Vice. A string of boat companies, millions upon millions of dollars, and a government contract slash drug runner double cross that ended in a hail of gunfire and blood on a Miami street. So join me, fellow investigator, as we go back to the days of flash and cash, make a midnight run at 100 miles per hour in four-foot seas, and try to untangle the unsolved mystery of who killed Don Arano. Who killed Don Arano? Who killed Don Arano? Part 1. The Man Who Became the Legend Don Arano's father owned a gas station and at one point a taxi company, and both of those went out of business during the Great Depression. Arano attended Brooklyn College where he played football, wrestled, ran track, and graduated with a physical education degree in 1948. He was a lifeguard at Coney Island, and sailed with the Merchant Marine for a time. He worked as a PE teacher, then took a job with his father-in-law's New Jersey construction business. It was in the Jersey construction trade that Arano finally settled down and found his stride. After learning the business and building up a few good working relationships, he started his own Jersey construction business in 1953. Arano's construction company built shopping centers and houses that capitalized on the droves of people moving into the suburbs at that time. 
he sold his business six years later in 1959 and at 32 retired to Miami a millionaire. At six foot three with jet black wavy hair, wide toothy smile and an athletic build, Don Arano looked like the hero from a Hollywood movie. Once in Miami, he started racing boats as a hobby and soon he had to build extra shelves in his office to hold all of the trophies. By the end of 1962, he had built Formula Marine, which made offshore racing boats. He established Formula by winning a few offshore races in the boat, then he sold the company to Ohio's Alliance Machine Corporation. He immediately went to work and started Donzi Marine in 1964. He built Donzi into an internationally recognized fast boat brand, then promptly sold that company to Teleflex Inc. in 1965. In the following year, he started Magnum Marine, and in 1967, Don Arano won the Offshore Powerboat World Championship driving his 27-foot Magnum offshore racing boat. With the publicity and reputation of the Magnum brand etched into world champion history, Arano quickly sold Magnum Marine as well. But by this point, it seems like people were starting to catch on to Don's M.O. He would design and build a racing boat, give it a cool sounding brand name, create a company to crank out production models based on that boat's proven performance in the offshore racing circuit, sell the company, then make an even better, faster boat to beat the old company's boats, then sell that company, and he had done it three times. But this time the guys were on to him, so the sale of Magnum Marine came with a non-compete clause, and Arano was forbidden for a specified period of time from building another competing boat and boat brand. So, rather than start another company, he went to work as an employee for Cary Yachts, owned by Miami Beach boat builder Elton Carey. The boat that Carey then built was a total Arano concept and design, even though it was branded as a Carey and attributed to the Carey engineers. Arano named that boat the Cigarette, and in it, Arano won his second world championship and his third consecutive U.S. championship. Both of those championships in the new carry-built boat named the Cigarette left the Magnum boats in the dust and the guys who now owned Magnum Marine steaming on the docks. And here, let's think about this for a second. Arano had just sold Magnum Marine after winning a world championship in a Magnum. He could have just as easily made a deal with those guys to stay on as a consultant build a new model with them and win his second world championship and third U.S. championship in a Magnum instead of a carry. But that's not what he did. He was a competitive guy. He did it the way he did it to rub the new Magnum owners' faces in it, to show them that it wasn't the boats, but the boat captain. And he had essentially done the same thing with Formula and Donzi. Don Arano had the ability to win offshore powerboat races, but he also had the ability to make people angry at him, and he loved it. 
As soon as his non-compete clause expired with Magnum, Arano now applied the world and U.S. champion Carrie Hull boat name to his company, Cigarette, and once again he was building boats that were smoking the competition. He sold the Cigarette Racing Boat Company in the 70s, bought it back in a merger with his Squadron Marine, then he sold Cigarette for the last time in 1982. All in all, Arano's boats have won over 350 offshore powerboat races, two world championships, and three U.S. championships. While all of this innovation and boat company wheeling and dealing was going on, the drug trafficking business was steadily growing in America. Marijuana and cocaine at the time were produced mainly in Mexico and Central America and much of that illegal product was being brought into the country on boats. The offshore racing boat configuration was ideal for smuggling since that style of boat was fast, could travel in rough seas, had a long range, and was long and hollow with nothing but empty space in the bow which made up over half of the boat's running length. It was no secret that the drug smugglers preferred the long-range offshore boats like Magnums, Formulas, and Cigarettes that Don Arano had famously designed, raced, and sold. Many cigarettes were ordered in all black with no chrome and no interior V-berths and the biggest, most powerful engines available, and it didn't take Sherlock Holmes to know what those boats were being bought for. Large Coast Guard cutters and lumbering customs center consoles found themselves hopelessly outgunned and left in the wakes, so much so that they rarely bothered to chase a running drug boat at all. Some of the go-fast offshore boats were so fast that they would register on radar as low-flying aircraft. Arano built the fastest boats. His customers were the people who wanted the fastest boats. Those just happened to be offshore powerboat racers and drug smugglers. In many cases, these were the same people. At one point, as many as nine of the 16 offshore powerboat racers were either under indictment or being investigated for ongoing drug running. One of these men was 1984 U.S. champion and 1985 world champion Ben Kramer. This is the connection that causes the story to really heat up, so put on your life jacket and hang on. Part 2. Form Follows Function In order to understand what made Don Arano unique in the world of offshore powerboats, we need to understand just a bit about the technical aspects of making a boat go fast on the open ocean. For decades, offshore powerboat racing was a gentleman's sport. The designers of ocean racing hulls worked directly with boat captains and the competition was fierce but friendly. Going fast in the ocean presented many challenges that lake-bound hydroplanes like the famous Miss Budweiser never had to deal with, namely rough water. In some cases, very rough. 
When seas are calm, going fast is a simple matter of the hull with the least resistance and the boat with the highest power to weight ratio. The least resistant hull is accomplished most efficiently by a flat bottom because the shortest distance between two points is a straight line and a flat hull has less contact with the water surface. Remove some of that material by creating a channel down the center line and the hull has even less resistance and can go even faster. This is a rudimentary description of how a hydroplane works, at least in part. But as waves grow larger and choppy conditions mount, flat bottom hulls pound and are forced to go over then back down the surface of each wave. This makes the ride dangerously harsh and unstable. It is possible to push a flat bottomed craft across rough seas if you add enough length and weight, such as in a freighter. But such size is far beyond the scope of a racing boat. So racing a boat with a flat bottom hull in the ocean is out. In the early days, ocean racers such as Sir Max Aitken and Sam Griffith experimented with V-hull boats that were designed to slice through rough waves and therefore go faster across a rough ocean. The V-hull's angle is called dead rise when measured at the transom, which is normally the most flat part of the hull, so less of an angle and the V-hull's angle is called entry angle when measured at the bow, which is normally the sharpest angle. The problem these early racers encountered was that as you add a steeper angle to the hull, you increase the amount of drag the boat's motors must push through the water. With enough power, it can be done, but we're talking about guys racing each other, so there was a trade-off curve between how steep the angle of your V-hull could be and how fast the boat would go with a given amount of horsepower. A steeper V-bottom could handle rougher seas, but needed more power to maintain the same speed as a less sharp V-bottom. Adding power adds weight, and weight slows the boat. This dilemma was solved by naval architect Ray Hunt and put to work by offshore racer and yacht broker Dick Bertram. The solution is a hull feature called lifting strakes, and it is still used in all V-hull offshore boats to this day. So the flat bottom boat goes faster over calm water because the flat surface glides, or planes, on top of the surface easier and with less power. The first guys who tried to make V-bottom boats found that it took too much power to make a V-bottom plane in the same way, and the increased power meant increased engine weight to the point of slowing the boat, and it was a circular issue. But the lifting strakes designed into the 24-degree dead-rise V-hull made by Ray Hunt are essentially narrow front-to-back strips on the hull that protrude out from the V-bottom to make a lengthwise flat strip that is just a few inches wide. This feature is also employed at the edge of the hull where it is a little wider and at that position is called a chine. With these added elements, the hull could plane on the fore to aft running strakes and the flat chines on the hull edges, 
but still have an overall steep angled V shape to cut through the waves. In 1960, just one year after Don Arano moved to Miami, Dick Bertram entered his Ray Hunt designed boat called Mopey into a race from Miami, Florida to Nassau, Bahamas, a distance of 165 miles. On the day of the race, the wind was 30 knots with 8-foot seas, and Bertram finished the race two and a half hours ahead of the second-place boat. That decisive and indeed legendary victory changed the face of not only offshore racing, but boating forever. The boat that Bertram built based on that offshore racing hull was the iconic 31-foot Bertram and it is still one of the most beautiful and sought-after boats in the world today. So for years, the offshore boat racing scene progressed and boats grew faster mainly due to lighter materials and the higher power-to-weight efficiency of newer engines. Don Arano entered the offshore boat racing scene with the bravado of a zero-sum competitor and money to burn. One of his main contributions was designing a hull that was longer than the older boats while being more narrow. In this way, the boats could slice through rough seas due to their narrow beam, but still have enough flotation to carry very large engines due to the boat's longer length. Offshore racing boats grew to 38, 42, and 46 feet long, and horsepower grew into the thousands. And if you couldn't afford to build a 40-foot racing boat with 3,600 horsepower, then stay on the dock. So Don would build boats to race and build a boat company around the racing brand, then sell the company, and he did it over and over. One of his sales methods was to tell someone coming in to look at boats that he was all sold out of whatever they wanted, but then tell them he did have another boat, a slightly bigger one, that he was building for himself and that he could be persuaded to sell that one. This worked every time and Don sold dozens of 35-footers to guys wanting 28-footers. Half the people on cigarettes in South Florida in the 80s thought they had boats that Arano had been building for himself. Part 3. The Drugs and the Money Miami became the point of entry for drug smugglers out of sheer logistics. It has a protected bay, deep water ports to the Atlantic, and is perched on the southern tip of Florida with access to the Caribbean and South America. Miami has an international airport and an intricate system of intracoastal waterways, countless private homes with docks, commercial real estate along deep canals, and all of the resources and industry of a large city. In most other coastal towns, a $2 million 42-foot boat that's only 13 feet wide and can go 130 miles an hour and sounds like a top-fuel drag racing car tends to stand out. But in Miami, they're a dime a dozen. 
they blend in with thousands of other boats, larger and smaller, and all of that boat traffic makes great cover for someone wanting to avoid any imperial entanglements, as one old smuggler once said. So a smuggler bringing in a go-fast boat with a few hundred thousand dollars worth of illegal cargo may not want to pull up and unload at the city marina. But imagine someone who works for a landscaping company, or even owns a landscaping company. And it could easily be the pool keeper, pest control, or housekeeping. Many of those accounts are homes on the water in Miami or Fort Lauderdale. Most of those customers are seasonal residents, so in the summer, when the temperatures are above 90 degrees, those residents are gone. But their lawns still need mowing, so the landscaping crews are there once a week, and they know which homes have no one there for three or four months. Conveniently enough, the summer is also when the seas are the calmest, that is, as long as there are no active hurricanes around, so it's a great time to bring in the goods. The landscaping guys or the pool cleaners tip off the smugglers and get a nice bonus for the information. Then the smugglers now know what homes are seasonally vacant, so in the middle of the night a boat comes in the inlet, cruises up the intercoastal, docks at one of those homes, unloads the gear, around the side yard and into a few trucks. The landscaping guys might even be so considerate as to leave a few wheelbarrows and wagons on the back patio to make the job easier, and from there it goes into garages and warehouses, and the rest is history. Serious legal and in some cases life-threatening risks are being taken, but for staggering financial rewards. And this went on, and still goes on, and we're talking millions upon millions of dollars being made guys making enough money that they can afford to buy a boat from Don Arano. Now yes, there are legitimate business people who bought formulas and Donzies and cigarettes and who still buy those boats today. Like someone who owns a screen enclosure business in South Florida and installs 20 screen enclosures a month and makes $5,000 on each one and pulls down a million bucks a year can buy whatever boat he wants. Almost or a 28-year-old guy whose father owns four Jeep dealerships. Someone like that. But for the most part, those aren't the guys you have to be worried about. But when your customers are also offshore powerboat racers, competitors that you have humiliated time and time again, and when those same customers are also drug smugglers, you have to be cautious about who you tick off. And Don Arano was not necessarily an overly cautious guy. Part 4. Blue Thunder So among the legitimate businessmen, drug runners, and offshore boat racers who were Don Arano's speedboat customers, there were also powerful heads of state. President Lyndon Johnson bought several Donzies from Don Arano, and he used to race his secret service agents in them on a lake at his Texas ranch then-Vice President and later President George Bush Sr. was also an Arano customer and he bought at least two cigarettes from him. President George Bush Sr. spoke very highly of Arano in a videotaped interview for the documentary Thunderman, The Don Arano Story from 2007, which was narrated by Florida native and one of my favorite actors, Andy Garcia. 
That's a great film, and you have to watch it if you want to learn more about Arano and the offshore scene of that era. In Thunderman, President Bush compliments Arano, and it was well known that the two were good friends. At one point in the interview, President Bush even says, quote, Way back when I was the head of the CIA, Don came and offered to help our country. That's a sentence that certainly covers a multitude of possibilities, and we may never know exactly what Arano did for the CIA, but he was obviously involved with them in some way. The Blue Thunder Contract By the early 1980s, Don Arano had already sold a boat to Vice President George Bush, who we know he had dealings with since Bush's CIA days. There is little doubt that Bush was instrumental in what happened next. Arano designed a new catamaran-style go-fast boat that was 39 feet long and could top out around 70 miles per hour. Now, this was by far not the fastest boat Arano had ever made, but in a rough sea, the catamaran hull could stay at speed where other V-hulls would be forced to slow down, but that was with one contingency. The boat had to be going in a straight line and directly into a head sea. In that situation, the catamaran hull has an advantage. But in any other situation, a heading where the boats have to go into the waves at an angle from the port, from a quarter to starboard, any time they have to turn, in a following sea, in very high winds, in short, in most other circumstances, the V-hull offshore boat is better, more stable, and faster. And the debate between the V-hull or the catamaran hull is something that offshore powerboat racers and indeed sport fishermen may argue over till the end of the world, but catamarans look really cool. They get better fuel mileage, and they are faster in the right conditions. So somehow, Arano worked his magic and he solidified a contract with the U.S. Customs to build and deliver the 39-foot cigarette catamarans dubbed USA 39s. All in all, they built 18 USA 39s and two diesel-powered 41-footers. So now, Arano appears on the cover of the Miami Herald driving one of these new drug smuggler chaser boats and with him in the boat is Vice President George Bush Sr. and the Commissioner of U.S. Customs William Von Robb and the drug runners were none too happy about it at all. The reality is that the Blue Thunder Task Force was largely a showpiece for the U.S. Customs and the federal government's war on drugs. The Blue Thunder boats could scarcely catch a hell-bent V-hull cigarette in anything but a low-wind head sea where the chase was in a straight line, and even then, what are they going to do when they catch up to them? Tell them to pull over? Sure, they could shoot at them, but at that point, the guys running can shoot back too. I'd really like to know how many illicit drug shipments were ever really stopped by a Blue Thunder boat chasing down a go-fast boat. And there are some very entertaining stories from those cat and mouse days too. One I heard firsthand from someone who owned a marina back in the 80s. 
What happened was there was a big black and gray cigarette coming in hot into one of the inlets and the customs patrol had spotted it using radar mounted on an unmanned hot air balloon they had deployed over the ocean on the coast near Miami. They sent out a Blue Thunder boat and the cigarette veered away from the inlet at the last minute when it saw the Blue Thunder boat coming out and together they headed north. With the cigarette flying and the Blue Thunderboat chasing them, the customs called for backup and at the next inlet to the north, a second Blue Thunderboat joined the chase. After they passed the next inlet, a third Blue Thunder catamaran fell in behind them and the cigarette continued to outrun them all. The cigarette boat leading the chase finally pulled in at the fourth inlet and casually docked at the first marina it came to. The three customs Blue Thunder boats rafted up and made a big ceremony of arresting the cigarette boat captain, then they proceeded to dismantle the black and gray 39-footer searching for the drugs the guy was obviously smuggling. They took the boat apart from stem to stern, looked in every hatch, compartment, and even inside the seat cushions and they found nothing. The boat was empty and they knew that they had just been played. The story I heard from the marina owner was that while Customs was chasing this flashy black and gray drug running boat that the real shipment was quietly brought in through that first Miami inlet in some old, dirty, nondescript commercial fishing boat that no one even looked at twice. So regardless of how effective or ineffective the Blue Thunder boats were at actually stopping any drugs, the contract was still making Don Arano a lot of money. But Arano knew and always even said that the real money wasn't in selling boats, but in selling boat companies. So once again, he did just that. With only a few boats finished and delivered to customs, and the remainder of the 20 contracted boats still outstanding, Don sold the USA 39 Arano brand to his offshore racing rival but longtime friend, Ben Kramer. There was only one problem. Ben Kramer was not only an offshore powerboat racing champion, he was also a known drug runner who had been giving the US Customs and the Justice Department the slip for years. So now, the U.S. Customs was buying boats that were being made to catch drug smugglers, and the person being paid those federal tax dollars to make those boats was a known drug smuggler. Meanwhile, George Bush decides he's going to run for president. And Bush had, up to that point, been publicly instrumental in securing the Blue Thunder contract for Arano even to the point of having a photo of himself riding in one of the boats with Arano on the cover of the newspaper. And now that Bush wants to run for president, it comes out that Arano has sold Blue Thunder to a drug runner. And remember that the bulk of Bush Sr.'s political prerequisite for a presidential bid had been made by his time serving as the vice president to President Ronald Reagan, which was the administration that actually coined the term War on Drugs. And they had also ushered in First Lady Nancy Reagan's Just Say No campaign, which gave us such failed jewels as DARE and mandatory minimums. 
part of the Blue Thunder Company sale allegedly involved a duffel bag of cash changing hands from Kramer to Arano, and almost instantly the U.S. Customs informed Arano that if he did not reverse the sale that the contract would be voided. This would render the USA 39 Blue Thunder business worthless. At the same time, George Bush was suddenly not returning Arano's calls. Don Arano's political protection had run for cover and the company he had just sold to his friend, albeit a dangerous friend, was about to be sunk. Arano had no choice but to buy the company back from Kramer and the rumor is he signed the deal but was pretty slow in giving Kramer back that duffel bag of cash. And there may have been a reason beyond simple greed. Before you think that this situation could get no stickier, the fact that Arano had taken a large sum of cash from Kramer in the process of selling Blue Thunder to him finally gave the Justice Department and their buddies at Customs an in on Kramer that they had tried furiously to get for years. It turned out that even if a single bill in that duffel bag could be traced to any number of fake business fronts that Kramer had knowingly used to launder drug money, that the feds would finally have their man. A flagrant and flashy fugitive who had made fools of them for years. So now this put Arano into the position of having to be a witness against Kramer in a federal money laundering case. And previous witnesses against Ben Kramer had been, well, let's just say, accident prone. So on January 3rd, 1987, Don was in the warehouse offices of USA Racing on Thunderboat Row in Miami. His USA Racing Team company manager Jerry Engelman was asking Don for a raise, it being Engelman's one-year anniversary with the company. The two were interrupted by a man who was supposedly there to buy a boat and Engelman went back to his desk so Don could negotiate with the customer. The customer said he worked for a rich Italian businessman and Engelman overheard the man say he would do anything for his boss, even kill for him. Engelman says that the meeting suddenly became very awkward and uncomfortable and that at this point Don asked the man what his name was. The customer said his name was Jerry Jacoby, maybe trying to drop a name that Don had heard before. But Jerry Jacoby was an offshore powerboat racer that was perhaps more well-known in those circles than this man realized, and Jacoby was someone that Don knew personally. And Don knew that this guy, whoever he was, was certainly not Jerry Jacoby. Arano asked the guy to show him some ID, and the man said he had left his wallet in his car. At this point, Arano became agitated and flustered and he told his manager, Engelman, to show the customer the boats because he had to go. Arano left the building and went to see a friend at another boat company just down the street. After that short visit, he returned to his car, a white convertible Mercedes, and when he tried to leave, he found himself suddenly blocked in by a Lincoln Continental. Before he could back up and get around the car, a man got out and fired at least five shots into his car and before an ambulance could get him to the hospital, 
the legendary Don Arano was dead. In broad daylight, at the center of offshore race boat manufacturing in Miami, at a time when all of those people were getting off work and leaving, people saw it, people heard it, people knew who had been shot immediately, and it was by more than one account, chaos. The investigation that followed is still to this day the most expensive criminal investigation in the history of Florida. Rumors and theories of who had killed Don Arano were many and varied. Don was a rich playboy womanizer with ties to offshore racing, presidents, vice presidents, kings, cartels, and smugglers. One person, when asked who might be a suspect in Arano's murder, replied, Every husband in America. So the jealous husband, the Colombians, the government, a drug runner, someone he owed money to, any number of powerful people he had mocked, outbested, or generally infuriated over the years, the list of suspects was long, but the investigation came up with nothing for years. According to Arthur Harris, the author of Speed Kills, someone at the crime scene said to the cops, this wasn't a professional hit because there were so many witnesses. And the cops said, no, this was a professional hit precisely because there were so many witnesses meaning that there were so many witnesses you could never get a straight story. Someone saw a blue Lincoln, it was a black Lincoln, it was a black Cadillac, it was one guy, it was two guys. They were tall, they were short, black hair, brown hair, a hat, no hat, five shots, eight shots, a machine gun. Incidentally, Arano had been shot directly in front of the Apache Racing Boats building, which was the boat company owned by Ben Kramer. All of the newscast pictures of the pool of blood under Arano's white Mercedes showed the Apache Racing logo on the building in the background, and many people thought that this was a very intentional message. Seven months later, in August of 1987, on Williams Island in Miami Beach, federal agents arrested Ben Kramer, calling him the mastermind behind the largest marijuana smuggling operation in U.S. history. Kramer was listed as a suspect in the Arano murder instantly, but for years no evidence was ever found that linked Kramer to the shooting. Kramer was convicted of drug smuggling and money laundering and given two life sentences. Then, on April 17, 1989, at 11am, Ben Kramer attempted a daring escape by helicopter from the Metro Correctional Center in South Dade County. The helicopter landed in the prison yard, Kramer jumped aboard, and the aircraft took off. They would have made it, but the pilot panicked when he saw guards drawing what he thought were guns, but what he later found out were radios. The pilot tried to head out of the prison yard too quickly before gaining enough altitude, and the helicopter tail rotor clipped the top of a fence, and they crashed inside the buffer zone between the two exterior compound fences, and all aboard were captured. The pilot, 
Ben Kramer's brother, and Ben Kramer himself. In 1990, after a long investigation, police traced a rental car and a shell casing found by the rental car cleaning attendant to a man named Bobby Young, who was finally arrested as being the hitman who had actually shot Don Arano. Now, it's only circumstantial, and maybe he's just a generous guy, but Ben Kramer hired and paid for the attorney who represented Bobby Young. The case dragged out for five more years, and finally, in 1995, Bobby Young pleaded no contest to shooting Don Arano and was sentenced to 19 years for second-degree murder. In a strange twist, a year later, Ben Kramer also pleaded no contest to a charge of second-degree murder in the case of Don Arano. My summary. Wow, what a story. When I was a kid growing up in Florida, I loved the cigarette boats. I loved watching the boat races. I went to the hydroplane races on Biscayne Bay when I was a kid with my mom and dad and we watched the race from the historic Miami Marine Stadium and I remember going to eat at a restaurant after the race where they had pictures of the race boats in action from all the years past. I went to the Miami Boat Show with my dad when I was 11 years old and we saw a really small 20-foot cigarette that was like a tiny model of one of the big offshore racing boats and inside it had a foot-operated gas pedal for the throttle and I thought that was the coolest thing I had ever seen. To me, back then, Don Arano was a world champion offshore boat racer. He was the guy who made Donzi and Cigarette and Formula. Of course, drug runners wanted those boats because they were the fastest, and it made sense that Customs wanted some too for the same reasons. Don Arano just got caught in the middle, and when you make deals with both sides, sometimes you get caught between the devil and the deep blue sea. As for the mystery of who killed Don Arano, well, two people confessed to doing it. But those are two people in jail who might say anything to make that time shorter. At least Ben Kramer falls into that category. The only evidence ever submitted to link Ben Kramer to the Don Arano killing is what the Justice Department calls consciousness of guilt. Consciousness of guilt is inferred by the action of Ben Kramer paying the attorney to represent Bobby Young, who is the man who physically shot Don Arano, so it looks like he's trying to help out one buddy who he hired to kill his other buddy. But we may never know. The list of people who had it out for Don Arano is long. He had a knack for winning and also a knack for making people mad in the process. He sold one boat to a known Colombian drug runner who blew the engines up and came back asking to have the engines replaced and Don told the guy to get lost. The customer said he'd pay for the new engines and Arano said, too late, you already annoyed me, so get out of here and go get your engines from someone else. And this was, by all accounts, a really dangerous guy. But Don didn't care. And there are many stories like that.
His life may have been cut short, but what a life he had. I didn't know him, and I don't know any of his family or friends. I do wish his children goodwill and health and happiness. And if we could go back and offer him the chance to either live his life as it was, or trade it for a long, leisurely, cautious existence, I bet Don Arano wouldn't change a thing. Thank you sincerely for joining me here on Renegade Files. Subscribe and follow the show now so together we can explore the deepest cases of conspiracy, unsolved mysteries, and paranormal events. I'm glad to have you in the Renegade Files crew. So until we come back and do it again next time, I'm your host, Lex Gordon. Stay wild, buccaneer child. Thank you.